0: Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, coming at you from the city of Gotham tonight. It's fantastic. Apparently, it's Christmas in May, but um, well, I'm really excited to be here. And, and Christy, how do you how do you celebrate Christmas in May?
1: Uh, I celebrate it alone in my apartment with a lot of cats. Oh, oh! See,
0: for me, it's explodable wind-up penguins. <laughs> so you know, I, I, it's uh, you know, it's very strange. Uh, but um, I'm really interested, John. How 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 do you
2: celebrate Christmas in May? Oh, with my circus friends, actually oh, uh, committing uh, yeah. various crimes
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, with uh, gatling guns and mm, uh, exploding yes. presents at public gatherings
1: you and know, umbrellas that do like things.
2: Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I feel like there's need, not need enough the of that at Daily Mall at, at malls in May is exploding presence, you know. So uh anyway, well, we're going to be talking about Batman returns as we are moving through our Batman films that we have not covered yet here on the 602 club. And before we get there, just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who listens. We really truly do appreciate you joining us here every week on the 602 Club. And of course, you can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. So make sure you're subscribed. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor, hit us up with a star rating review, help the show continue to grow. We'll read your review on the show if you do. Uh, Right now, uh, as we're recording, you know what, Uh, I just got Shrek on 4k and I have a 4k digital code for you. So all you need to do You need to go to us on Twitter at the 602 Club. You need to find the specific tweet about our contest. You only have to do two things. You have to follow us and like that tweet. That's it. And you could win Shrek on 4K. So we'd love to give that to you. So make sure you're doing that. You can also find us over on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We've got the listeners only discussion group called the Babel Conference there on Facebook. You can join. And, of course, we've got trek.fm you can find online where you can also go to the contact section, send us an email if you'd like, and see all the other shows we're doing. Huge thank you, though, to our associate producers here, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. Appreciate them supporting the show through Patreon. Now, if you like what we do, here on the network, we ask you to go to patreon.com slash FM and see how you can be part of the team. Make sure everything keeps coming to you here on the network. Uh, every little bit helps, and we have some great contribution levels as well that you can give at. Again, that's patreon.com slash FM. Now, this was not on the outline, but I figured you guys would know I'm going to ask this. Um, and, John, you're the oldest of all of us here, J- just just by a little bit. Um, but mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. little bit actually makes a difference for the movies that you ended up seeing the theater that I didn't um, oh, just yeah. those couple of oh, years. Much. So I'm wondering for you as, you know, Batman was such a pivotal role, a uh, movie for you. You talked about that when we talked about 89. And so I'm wondering how you were feeling when Batman Returns was coming out, because I mean, you legitimately loved 89 when it came out.
2: Oh, and I wasn't alone. A lot of people loved. It's Very uh, the true. I mean, it was Batman. a
0: massive movie in '89. Mm-hmm. It was one of the biggest movies of the year.
2: Uh, it was one of the biggest. It was like a top ten box office hit until you know the '90s. You know, they they have that all that stuff rotating all the time. But um, the hype around Batman and then a potential sequel was quick. There were rumors immediately flying, and this is pre-internet days. Rumors immediately in magazines and everything. It was like, oh, they're scouting pigeon? a place. Yes, but, but, you know, like the, the fanzines back then, you know, it's all oh, I heard that somewhere in North Carolina, they're filming. And it's like, no, they're not. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But everybody was really immediately ramped up for it. And my perception that the way I recall it is that basically the hype level going into Batman Returns was essentially, for those who might be a little bit younger, akin to the hype level going into the Phantom Menace. This was, you know, just a few years later, everybody was still super stoked about the first Batman movie and the fact that they had the Penguin, but like it was going to be cool Penguin. It wasn't going to be Burgess Meredith Penguin. Mm -hmm. And we saw what they did with the Joker in 89. And then you saw Catwoman and Michelle Pfeiffer. She was sort of at the height of her fame at this point. And then, you, you know, you see her in the outfit and yes, people were kind of like, oh, this is intriguing. And you just saw it and you were like, okay, I know it's going to be weird. I And I know I love the first one. And this looks immediately interesting. And then the movie was released and it was uh, that was a fun ride in and of itself. We can get to that later. But, you know, with first reactions and everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, Christy, do you remember or recall the first time you ended up seeing Batman Returns?
1: Yeah, uh, I definitely didn't see it till it was on home release, but um, not long after it came out uh, in the 90s. And this was my favorite Catwoman for a long time. Um, Because I mean, this was the first time I had ever really seen a lot of Catwoman on screen. Um, I knew of her before that. But I mean, this was the one that I watched over and over again and something that my dad and I watched together um, and inspired me wanting to dress up like Catwoman and everything. It just it fascinated me. And then also the back handsprings.
0: Yeah, yes. there are a lot yeah. of back handsprings. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, apparently that's the only way Catwoman knows how to walk is through a back handspring. Um Yep. So uh, it, it's interesting because uh, if, if one thought my response to 89 was tepid um, back in the day when I first saw it, um, the response to this was even worse. Uh, and it is very interesting, John, you mentioned how this movie just, it had a not quite the response that 89 did. And um, I think that that's something that is fascinating and it's one of those things like it's interesting having lived through that time because for me personally, and I think, you know, for you and many others, like we had gotten used to sequels being relatively good for major franchises. I mean, Star Trek two was an incredible, I mean, even better than the first one. Uh, you know, Empire Strikes Back, arguably better than the first one, you know. And so, uh, you know, I mean, Indiana Jones the Temple Doom, not as good as the first one, but still good, you know, like... I don't know. It it feels like um, we got a little bit spoiled in the 80s with a lot of sequels being good. Heck, we talked about Rambo 2 here. Rambo 2 was good. Um, You know, so um, Rocky 2 was good. I mean, you know, we could go on and on with with the amount of films. I mean, many people thought Superman 2 was better than Superman. Uh, So... I. The list goes on and on. And so it's very interesting to get to this. And, and so I wanted to ask you, John and, and Christy, th- this movie is the origin for our two big characters, much the way that the first movie gave us the origin of Batman in some ways, but really the origin of Joker. This movie continues that trend in the sense that we're going to really focus on our villains and give their origin stories. And we even open the film with how Penguin comes to be. Like his origin story, and and so I just wanted to ask you with first how you feel like that works one as kind of the opening of the movie, and two how it just works as a function of the film, like Penguin's origin story. Does it work for you guys?
2: Uh, okay, uh, I, I'm going to preface this by saying that my my relationship with this movie is very complicated. Because the time that it came out, I was. So if you, you know, put it on
0: the, the Facebook status is it's complicated.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I you know it's it's one of those things where uh, when it first came out, I really really loved it. Um, I was not in the best place, uh, like emotionally or mentally, and there are things in this that really speak to that sort of thing. Like in a sense, there are aspects of this movie that to this day feel a little bit like a like a hand on the shoulder sort of thing where it's like, it's okay to be an outcast. It's okay to be a little bit odd. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you can still find a, like even the penguin, you know, he still finds a family granted. It's a crime family, but he still finds people that are, you know, accepting, him, you know? Yeah. Like he, he is who he is and that's fine. So th- there is that aspect of it. Um, There are some, you know, really solid set pieces and everything, but to get to the opening, the opening is I think important because it's an immediate declaration of what sensibility is informing this movie, right? It's letting you know. it's put, And I think you have to admire the opening in the sense that it puts all of its cards on the table and says, this is the type of reality we're in here. Which I think is a very important reset button because the first Batman went to great lengths to root it in, quote unquote, our reality. Yes. Yes. Whereas this movie is immediately saying, this isn't quite your reality. Mm-hmm. We're going back a little more, uh, you know, silver age comics sort of thing where a, an abandoned baby could be raised by penguins. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like, yes. you know, like it's a crazy origin story, but when you were seven years old reading a comic book, especially if you were a seven year old reading the comics in the 1960s, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that's a crazy monster story now. And, right. um. So, I, you know, is it off-putting? Yes, very much so. Is it an immediate declaration? Yes, very much so. Was it, at the time, uh, an incredible, I I kind of love it in the sense that uh, that opening is Tim Burton standing by his friend Paul Rubens, who had been through a lot by that point, and letting Paul Rubens know, hey, buddy. I got your back. I'll I'll at least get, give you a role every so often because Paul Rubens. I don't know if anybody knows, but had gone through a bit of a scandal with uh, involving oh, yes. adult theater and yes. himself. Mm-hmm. And so this was sort of Paul Rubens being on screen, and I I think it's it's one friend helping out another and saying like, hey, you know, I'll I'll at least get you a screen credit, keep you acting, so that people start thinking about something else than that. So, but yeah, that's my stance on the beginning of it.
1: That's a good. Way of putting it, because I, I do think that it I've always liked a cold open where they bring you directly into what's happening without giving a ton of dialogue or, or you know, exposition and writing um before diving into the story. So I liked that they're just showing you what happened with Penguin and to giving you an origin for him because, you know, maybe people that generally are going to see that movie in the theater originally had no idea about Penguin um, or at least had possibly seen him in the old sixties Batman stuff, but didn't know much about him otherwise. So I think that you needed it for that reason. And I like the way that they show you. Um, But I also think that, I don't know. The thing for me too, is that it's called Batman returns, not Mm -hmm. penguins origins. (laughs) Mm -hmm. so that's the thing that kind of throws me off with it it's
0: funny john you mentioned how this is clearly burton making a statement saying this is what this movie is going to be and how you rightly i think showed that this movie is diametrically opposed to the first movie in the sense of its tone like the first movie goes to such great lengths to kind of root it in a slightly fantastical world but making batman himself and and a lot of things going around more grounded you know and this movie kind of throws all of that out the window almost literally and says no basically this is going to feel like a movie that he'll make later on which is the nightmare before christmas and the absurdity Mm -hmm. of that that's what this movie really turns out to be and i i think like you, Christy, I'm immediately thrown off by getting into this because it's like, this is not the same place that I was before. You know, like, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like the same world. It doesn't really feel like a good continuation of what we had before. And I I think that the opening, of, I, I hadn't seen this movie in probably 20 years. And so, I really didn't have a ton of of recollection of what it was like. And that I, I will, I, I think I texted uh, John and, and uh, another friend of ours. And I was just like, what is happening? Like this is, mm-hmm. I, and so personally, I, I think penguins origin specifically, I think one of the things that I kind of pinpointed between that and what we get with Catwoman's origin is that, He just takes things so literally like um, and it it feels like way too literal of a thing that we're literally going to have a guy get thrown down a river and get ended up, you know, ends up being raised by penguins and that's why he's called penguin and it just, it, it's, it harkens back to, it's like, the the original movie had done such a good job of differentiating itself from the 66 batman and and every once in a while giving a sly wink to it this movie completely embraces almost that uh, i think I, that mentality of like we're going to take everything hmm. so over the top that it's not there's no believability in it anymore
2: see i i think that um uh, okay. First and foremost, anytime that I'm issuing sort of like a counterpoint, I, I, I'm going to preface our, our where we're going to end up at the end of this show. I'm not particularly defending the movie. Like I said, I have a very oh, complicated sure. yeah. sort of you know re, you know reaction to it every time. Um, if anything, it's a movie that. Over time, I sort of obsessively rewatch because I keep wanting it to be better than it is. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, tr- oh, I'm <laughs> so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> because no, but but the thing is, rolling the the clock back, like I said, the first time I ever saw it, it spoke to me. It hit me in a certain way because of the period I was in my life. Now, intellectually, I can say I'm not there anymore, and therefore I can recognize you know X, Y, and Z about it. But I think that the fact that the Penguins come up is then sort of explained away slash supported by Bruce Wayne while he's doing his detective work saying about the, the penguin boy who was raised as part of the circus. So it's not that the penguins raised him. It's that the circus raised him, but it's not distinctly drawn enough attention to like uh, some sort of line of dialogue. Like even if, uh, for instance, if the, the one, the bearded uh, circus guy had had some sort of passing line with penguin about how you know i'm the one that raised you or something like that like it, just one mm-hmm. little insertion of dialogue alleviates the the perception problem there but i think that more than anything all of the problems stem from the fact that you have two good movies that are mashed together because what this movie really falls victim to is the old idea that, well, we did that. We got to find some way to ramp it up. We got to, we got to crank up the action and the intensity in this. So cram as much into it as you can. And I think that is why the penguins whole arc. If you, if you take this movie and you cut it out and you only watch the penguin parts, and then you only watch the catwoman parts, you say to yourself wow these are these are actually really good threads with some really interesting things to say here's penguin discarded by his parents and bruce wayne lost his parents but they at least loved him and you see and then you also see that like his parents were really sort of the inhuman ones because they threw away their child in a river for Pete's sake mm-hmm. like that's that's awful um and then catwoman there are so many statements with her storyline That are obviously meant to be statements about sexism and behavior in the workplace and all of those sorts of things. And then you have this tenuous third villain of Max Schreck who ties them together sort of, but really just winds up sort of like leeching the attention away from the two villains. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's why I think the Penguin stuff irritates is because they cram so much other stuff into it that you don't get that alleviating dialogue later because they got to keep everything moving. They got to keep everybody talking about their specific uh, plot and motive and, and that sort of thing.
1: And that's kind of what I was going to um, agree with you on as well, John is, is I do think you're right, Matt, that they do go too literal sometimes in the characterization. Um, but that the general tone of the movie is, is good and has some deep things that it's exploring. Um, But I I think it does just lean too much sometimes with the characters individually into that, you know, what we see later as Tim Burton's thing of like how he Mm -hmm. goes over the top dark with everything. Yeah. Cause like, you know, Catwoman eating the live bird or um, Penguin constantly having, Black sludge coming out of his mouth and uh, talking about killing everybody's firstborn child and stuff. You know, it's like just leaning way into the dark side for shock value. Well, mm-hmm. and
0: I, John, you brought up something that I think is really interesting because you know you have Mac Shrek, who you know uh, Christopher Walken's always great, and yet I think you're absolutely right. You know, he takes all motivation away from the the actual villains. And he kind of keeps pushing them into places. And so, you know, you get him trying to get uh, Penguin to run for mayor because he thinks he's going to be able to control Penguin and get what he wants with his, you know, not so power power plants, you know, because it's going to suck away power. You know, it's like. And, I, you know, the whole theme of that they're trying to go with it. It's really not, you know, villains that are the villains. It's really the politicians that are villains. And it's like, it's just so messy with him as a character. Like, it's it. Nothing's really clear. Everything feels as murky as the mud falling out of, you know, uh, Oswald Cobblepot's mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, Why he's constantly drooling black, I don't really know. Um, So, it just, you're absolutely right. They threw too much into this. And, and really what you end up turning this into is what another movie uh, years later is going to run into, which is Spider-Man 3, where you just have way too many yeah. villains, way too much going on. Oh, and yeah. And it never congeals into the story you want. And anything you're trying to say gets lost because it's all, it's less than half-baked. It feels like as, as, as cold as the fish that, you know penguin is chowing down on
2: well but but see the thing is what it's important what you're pointing out there about the template is even though there are problems with this this was a massively successful movie so the lesson that hollywood received was well we need to keep going down this track and i have a friend i've mentioned him many times on many different appearances on different places and everything like that joey who I, whom i've known since uh i was 15 years old um and joey After Batman Returns, every time he saw a trailer for something where there were two villains in the superhero movie, he would get visibly angry. Because he would say, it's going to be just like Batman Returns. Nobody's going to get enough screen time. The hero's going to get the short shrift. And it was like, hey, come on, man. Calm down. It it might not be so bad this time. But like nine times out of ten, Joey was spot on. He'd see two villains on the poster and he'd say, Damn it, I wish they would just go back to one villain and it's <laughs> like he's got a point here. He's got a point. Um yeah. and that that's that's the problem, right? Is you can never tell what uh the studio execs are going to use as their uh you know their their metric for what template to copy. And if you went with fan reaction they would say, okay, we kind of screwed up with Batman returns. Let's go back. They liked the tone of the first one, but we need to simplify it and keep it focused. And instead, and we'll get this to this later in the series, they made other corrections that were kind of like, guys, I don't think you really paid attention to what people had a problem with here, but okay. Yeah. Um but the but the thing is, like, for all of its problems, there are certain things that still rise above. There are still very watchable about this movie. And like I, there is some alternate universe where Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is the sole, uh, you know, antagonist character in Batman returns. And it is one of the greatest superhero films of all time as a result. Like there is, there was such potential and Michelle Pfeiffer brings so much to the role. I mean, Danny DeVito does too. And it's just, it's, it's, Mm, it just gets under my skin every time I watch it because I get caught up in Catwoman and then like it switches and I'm like, ah, I don't care as much about this. I want more Catwoman mm-hmm. and not not just because she looks purdy and stuff like that. She's a legitimately interesting character, you know, with with like this whole traumatic thing and this real theme behind her. And it's just so frustrating that that we didn't get that.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and that's something that I, I just wanted to add to that I really loved about how they wrote her in this, as well as how Michelle Pfeiffer portrayed her, which was they do show you the tortured nature of Catwoman and Batman's relationship. That yep. this is when you really get to see that they have this. Sometimes we love each other and then other times we think, okay, I guess we have to go fight now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, they constantly, feel like they have a lot of things in common but they're supposed to hate each other. Um and so I love that you're getting to see that and then also just the way that Michelle really plays it up. Um especially the the cat like tendencies of, you know, I'm going to take a bath now and, you know, licking her arm mm-hmm. um or, you know, with the claws and things like that. Um she just is aside from even like you're saying John the you know, good looking piece of it. She is captivating when she's on the screen. And then the costume was so different. And it, it was just really cool. Yeah.
0: You know, it's it's so interesting. Um, I'm going to completely disagree with both of you. I can't stand her in this film. And I can't stand the, the, the role of Catwoman in this movie. It'll it's so you. over the top. And it's so <laughs> overplayed. That it doesn't work for me whatsoever. Um, I think that they have a really good... I think they have a really good idea of this being a very um, tortured woman um, who uh, is being completely mistreated in her job. And she's been completely mistreated for most of her life, you can tell. And I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I think that, unfortunately the worst tendencies of Tim Burton cause Michelle Pfeiffer to overplay every single scene that she's in. So it comes across as silly instead of really moving in any way, shape or form. I think the beginning, uh, is better. Um, but as the movie goes on, it, she starts doing things that like, Chrissy, you mentioned like her, like pretending to be a cat and like bathing herself. And it's just like, that is something that would come straight from batman 66 and 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 is so over the top here it doesn't it doesn't work for me um and so i i end up kind of hating this catwoman personally that's, like I, it, I, and i know nuts. you I, I know you think i'm crazy but it just doesn't work and, and 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 this is this is the place where for me with penguin and catwoman's origin the worst tendencies of, of Burton are are, are here in, in, in that he's pushing things so far to the absurdity that that works in something where you're doing a claymation, you know, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas type of thing. It, it doesn't work here. And I think Burton is somebody who actually is somebody who benefits from having people tell him no. Um, and because he had more creative control here, he just went nuts. And in this role, it, it reg- where I liked Vicky Vale a lot because of her really down to earth, kind of more um, grounded portrayal. Here, I think he pushes Michelle Pfeiffer in a direction that just it makes it absurd instead of work for me. So.
2: And and that's, you know, of course, that's fair, you know, like it, the whole thing where like it, it might not work for you and everything and you don't need my permission to think what you think, obviously. Um, where I very much disagree with you here and the thing, this, this is what's difficult is I do not love Batman Returns. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is a movie that I think has significant problems. Um, and, w- you know, we can get to some of the technical stuff later, right? But I don't think that going over the top in and of itself is a problem, right?
0: In Penguin and of itself, is, no,
2: I would agree. No, it, it, Penguin over the top in his own movie is fine. Catwoman over the top in her own movie is fine. I think that what the problem is is that you have everybody going over the top, mm-hmm. but your hero is more reserved, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, that could be. Yeah. that's really what's jarring is like there, there's an imbalance in everything, and yeah, I think that point. um, I I I just I think that this Catwoman is super interesting as well. Because her origin story previous to this in the comics, you know, uh, of the decade previous was she was always like a prostitute or something like that. And in this, she's the woman who played by the rules and went through everything. And it was actually, you know, if anything, she's this very important symbolic response to the chauvinism in the business world that she had to deal with. Mm -hmm. And that's. Like that's a really interesting sort of thing to pick apart, um, and you know, again, I'm not, I, I, I'm not staunchly defending the film. Right there, there are problems, but Catwoman's not the problem. Like there, there are so many things where it's like, I really think that Max Shrek is a character that belongs to her arc, and he's forcibly put into the Penguin arc, mm-hmm. and that's where Shrek doesn't work. And that's why this connective tissue falls apart. Also, the fact that they have Shrek is why Batman gets virtually no screen time in this, which is doubly frustrating because I think Keaton's performance is actually even better in this than it was in the original Batman. And I think Batman's armor is better than it was. Like, this is one of my favorite Batman suits, right? Like, they streamlined it a little bit. Looks a little more flexible, mm-hmm. but they also gave him instead of that uh this is their first foray into instead of crafting the fake abs and everything, and then in the next movie, nipples, um, <laughs> they actually it actually looks like armor. And it's kind of this really cool look where it's like, oh neat. And also the idea that um, you know, it, it is like body armor and be- and Catwoman is able to find okay, there's you know, you have your front and your back armored, but your sides so that you can move are, you know, the uh, weak spot. Not, yeah, they're the weak spot. They're more flexible. Like suddenly Batman's suit just from one movie to the next becomes eminently more plausible as a means of, you know, going around and, 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 uh, fighting crime with the exception of the wings that pop out yeah. at that one point but that's yeah, okay. that's, that's, that's okay.
0: not what that, that, that well listen they part hadn't part.
2: they hadn't uh they hadn't invented the uh baloney mimetic fiber with electricity that christopher nolan decided it, to bring at least in there. that <laughs> so, made more <laughs> sense but um, um, i know but none of us were thinking that way
1: i do want to acknowledge though that, that although there are a lot of things that i love about this Catwoman, even though i know matt you disagree um I think that the one place that we can all agree, um, which I think we would, is the way that they explain how she becomes Catwoman in this movie. Um, I just don't like that they have, once she's pushed out the window, the whole scene with all of the cats come to warm her up, I guess, and then one is chewing on her finger, and then the whole scene of her trashing her apartment. It just doesn't really make sense, and it's also gross. Yeah. Yes. I, no,
2: I agree. There, there were so many subtler ways they could have have her, quote unquote, left for dead instead of right. falling from a giant spire. And I know that we're supposed to say, oh, well, you know, she fell through the awnings. And we've always accepted that in movies as, oh, well, you know, it cushions the your fall. Right, yeah. The wind <laughs> was just the right way and it slowed you down just <laughs> enough. Um, yeah, there, there were better ways they could have they could have done that and still had that menacing scene right. with Shrek.
0: Well, mm-hmm. so and I, I I acknowledge and I'll definitely give to you, John, that that part of this could be completely the imbalance that the movie is, where it it doesn't have a a uh, a tone to which where it ever finds any counterbalance to all the crazy that's happening. Because, case in point. You know, there's more of a balance, even though the the first movie has more Joker in it than Batman, there's still more of a balance because when you're not with Joker, you're either with Vicky Vale or with, with uh, you know, Keaton, and th- they're playing it straight. Mm-hmm. And so you end up having a nice balance of kind of realism with crazy. This movie, there's such an imbalance of crazy because Batman probably has, what, an eighth of this movie? And maybe the rest of it's Catwoman and and Penguin and then Shrek. And it's just it it never feels like it can find a consistent tone that allows those characters to have their over the top moments, but not feel like it's to the absurdity level. And I, I think we've hit on this, but. I cannot believe that a m- movie called Batman Returns has so little Batman in it. Like, yes, it's insane sure. how little time that Keaton has in this film. And he got paid like $10 million to do like 12 days of work, it seems like. So, good for him. Uh, but it, it's, it is... It, it's ridiculous. I mean, uh, you know, this movie should not be called Batman Returns. It should be called like Penguin and... Catwoman meet Batman or something because there's no Batman (laughs) in this movie.
2: It's true. There is very little, although he does get some magnificent visual tableau, right? Like when he's sitting alone in his study and the bat signal goes off and then you see the spotlights turn and twist and that, that shot of him turning and looking with the bat symbol behind him. Yeah. That's a beautiful, that is a beautiful image. I love it to this day. It is a beautiful image and I love it. I always shelve the idea of, well, what if the bat signal goes off and he has, like, a visitor in the house? Does <laughs> does he have a little switch where he turns it off so he doesn't know? <laughs> um, because that would be a dead giveaway. I would No, no, I'm just a Batman fan. I just like to know when he's going around somewhere. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, there is too little Batman here. He suffers from that because they they... They don't bring back anybody, right? If they brought back Vicky, it would be tied in, right? If they if they brought back people, that's one thing, but the fact that they have to go to the effort to introduce three major characters.
1: Yeah. That
2: that's naturally going to take away from your your hero. Um but I will say that again, there are some beautiful moments that he has. There are some whimsical moments. I do think Keaton plays it really well. I think that one of the things that also hurts the movie, and th- this is a big thing that that I really harp on, is the changing of the director of photography and the loss of Anton First as production designer, really hurt this movie a whole lot because everything looks more fake too. So you have this imbalance between the characters you have indulging a little bit too much that that whimsy that Burton enjoys and then you have sets that look fake Mm -hmm. whereas they went to great lengths again in 89 to make it look and function like a real city it felt like a real place on earth whereas this looks like a movie set in so many shots that you can't really buy into this Gotham existing
0: it it feels more like a stage play more yeah. than even a movie set.
1: Well, and especially yeah. when they uh, every time they visit the zoo, which I'm still like does anything there look like a zoo? It doesn't to me. Yeah. Um but yeah, every yeah. time that felt fake to me. It felt way too much like I was looking at a, a stage play or a, you know, um set a on a sound shop. stage. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, John, because I think, you know, to me, the production and the direction of this film um, really do suffer. And I think one of the the biggest ways in that is that the absurdity level of the film is even seen in its production design and the look and the feel of it. Like uh, we we had, like you said, more of a realism in that first movie. And the way it's shot, the lighting, and everything else. It's all stripped away here. So all we see is artifice. And and, and again, I would just say, say really, in, in many ways, absurdity. And it goes all the way to the beginning of the movie. Where, you know, the penguin is born. And that feels like a really bad set from some Nutcracker sweet production Mm -hmm. in uh you know podunk united states like it doesn't feel like a real like and 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 batman's house is not even the same house anymore it's like uh why did all of a sudden wayne manor turn into this weird very like stoic straight up and down house that looks like it's like Batman really uh-huh. downsized like just, did just, things just not go well to, in the
2: eighties there for him or <laughs> just, just wait till you get to Batman forever. Um, but, uh, I
0: yeah, which I haven't seen in years too. So I don't remember uh, what the Wayne manor looks like there. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. You, you know, I, I want to ask you this question though, Matt uh, and you too, Christy. Do you think that had this been an animated Batman feature would you have bought into it and forgiven some of these tendencies because you wouldn't have been asked visually to believe in it as a real environment Christy I'll kick that to you first do you do you think this works as an animated feature or do you think that this is just too much of a mess to really work regardless of the sort of the visual uh milieu you're in
1: I think in general, it would have been more viable if it was animated because you can do more unbelievable things, I think, in animation. Um, sometimes then you can make look real enough on screen. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. But I, I do still think that it suffers from too many villains, even if it was animated, um, you mm-hmm. know, cut Shrek and then it would be better.
0: It is a good question. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a valid question because a lot of things can can work better in animation. Um, my my initial thought though is that that's insulting to Batman the animated series you know which did so many great uh, storylines with its characters and everything and never came off this absurd.
2: Um, well but so. that, that's that's what's really interesting and sort of like what spurs the the question is a year later we got uh, Batman Mask of the phantasm. Which I can tell you, as a Batman fan, I saw that a year later with my aforementioned friend Joey, and we were basically, our reaction was, uh, that we like this better than Batman Returns. Can we sort of like find a way to swap these out? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, of course, Mask of the Phantasm is just another, you know, it's another origin story for everybody, and so it doesn't really mesh with 89. But, you know, as a kickoff to its own series, it's amazing. Um but that is, that's what's so interesting is how, how to reconcile. And th- this, I think, also is, and I know I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but because of the animated series, I think that the animated series went a long way to ameliorating some of mm-hmm. the disappointment with this because it came out so quickly afterward that. We were able to sort of compartmentalize Batman Returns and focus right. on what we liked about it, and the fact that it was more um uh you know animation friendly in certain respects allowed us you know to sort of like mingle our memories together so in a sense, the animated series worked really quickly to rehab uh the initial reactions to this, sure. which I mean were like really negative like parents were angry about this movie because Penguin was so dark. Um, and they were like that. That's the big reason for the course correction after returns is they they were practically like letter writing campaigns. They were so mad at Warner brothers for letting Mm -hmm. Burton do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. I I mean, and, and, and I, I will say, you know, I think that's a great question. And I think one of the things we kind of see is that with the production, I also do think much of the blame for this film lies at the feet of Burton being given too much control and allowed to run amok with what he does. And and I say that because he literally was given complete control, basically, of this film because he wanted more. Mm -hmm. And then this is what he does with it. Whereas you do see the juxtaposition of people who really love the character of Batman in the animated series and then do something that feels akin to what Burton was going for in 89, extrapolate that to animation. They even use, like, the other thing about the production of this film is that Gotham becomes this really weird, amorphous place that doesn't really even make any sense. It's like, like you said, it's out of time, you know, whereas the Gotham that we got in 89 was very rooted in the real world, except Mm -hmm. it was just. You know, Gotham itself was exaggerated. But the the world they lived in with the technology and everything all felt pretty realistic. Whereas this movie, it's, it's this weird combination of like, it's a cross between Dickensian England in some ways. And yet they have some technology. There's just this weird imbalance that they want to have that it just never seems to really connect, even with the movie that came before. But even with itself. Oh. So.
2: Oh, but, but the thing is, there's a production element that's introduced into this version of Gotham that is really leaned into, uh, in the upcoming films of the, the suddenly ever present giant statuary everywhere. And that, that, well, it's- so yeah, Batman Returns, that, that actually kicks it off. And it's, yeah. Um, well, Oof. I mean,
0: because they're uh, they're leaning into like that fascist architecture, world's fair type of architecture for Gotham City, um, and yeah, and they
1: just again,
0: it's absurd how far they take it.
1: You mean the statues yeah. that you see, mm-hmm. um, like on Literally either side everywhere. of the building? Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's. Um... Yeah, there's some bad tendencies. I think there's also a bad tendency with uh, the score. Because it. this is Elfman starting to eat himself in terms of his scores. Because 89 Batman, that score is absolutely incredible. It's phenomenal. It's one of the best of the last 50 years. It is stone cold classic. Can't touch it. Amazing. He also does Edward Scissor. Edward Scissorhands and Scrooged and uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Darkman, which is its own spoof of Batman. And what's weird is Batman Returns score exists in this sort of blender state with all of those other ones. And there are parts of it that work really, really well. And there are parts of it that really, really don't. And so I, I I would just be curious. I mean, Christy, what like full disclosure, I had the CD of the score and I listened to it constantly because of the parts that I did love and I still love like the mm-hmm. music from Penguin's death is fantastic. It's It's heart wrenching to listen to like
1: mm-hmm.
2: Elfman got what he was going for. But there are other things that are just sort of the introduction of the. The children's voices, it sounds a lot like the Scrooged score is really sort of off-putting. Um and that sort of thing. So I like, you know, yeah. just curious what you guys thought of the music.
1: The only thing that really stands out to me in this one is having Batman's theme back a lot, um, that we hear in eighty nine, which I really like. And then, like you said, mm-hmm. John, the music for Penguin's Death, um, and then i i do really like the scene and the music from um bruce and selena sitting in front of the fire oh yeah um, well, that's a good cue but otherwise yeah it feels like they don't make sense with what fits in between each of those moments i you know
2: i i i won't lie even though it makes sense cuz he's fighting this circus gang the circus music while he's fighting the circus gang Robs it of any hope of seriousness, which is odd because he he torches one person. He um, he blows one guy up. Um, so anybody that's that's really, you know, cranked up about uh, the the kill count of Batman in Snyder's <laughs> movies really needs to watch Batman Returns because um, he even smiles. He thinks it's it's yeah. a chuckle. Yeah, when he blows uh, that guy, guy up, up, it's
0: great. Mm-hmm.
2: Who I, I will point out, just in case anybody is uh, curious, the guy that he blows up with the dynamite is actually um, the main antagonist at the end of Over the Top, starring Sylvester Stallone. So, you know, there you go. It's tying together the uh, Stallone-connected universe there.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, so, you know, I, I like you bring up the score because obviously, you know, like you said, 89 is great. Regardless of even if you, you do not even have to like that movie to like that score, it's just so good. Um, here it feels like uh, he was doing Home Alone before John Williams will do Home Alone, and it works better in Home Alone because that movie is a goofy, silly movie when it comes to like you know, portraying the villains as ridiculous and and you know, here. Like you said, when you're playing like circus music and Batman's fighting in the street, it just makes it feel so silly. You know, the music needed to have a weight to it because what was happening on screen was ridiculous. Uh, Batman's fighting these weird, crazy circus clowns. And, you know, one, I hate clowns anyway uh, because they're creepy and scary. And two, uh, the music didn't help make this scene feel legitimate. You know, and, and just it's one of those places where the movie doesn't really help itself um, by making the right choices. And and I think one of the things that I really come to is that it seems like in almost every single area, nobody's really making the right choices to bring this movie together as a cohesive whole.
2: You know, it's interesting you say that, too, because the thing is, as I, I think through it, the the music, I think that where it falls apart are the moments where it's obvious Elfman is writing to what's on screen as opposed to writing what feels right. Where, because to go back to that 89 score, the reason it works so well is it's like Williams's 1978 Superman score. It It's an opera on its own. You can write the movie in your head as you go and, and it has its own flow. Whereas a lot of the cues in this don't work separate from the movie.
1: Hmm. And,
2: I think that also ties in because while you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, you said uh, nobody's making the right choices. I I realize as I'm replaying that, that, that first fight Batman shows up to, you know, fight the circus gang. If some of the photography had just been a little tighter so that the, the upper portion of the, the, the city wasn't as visible above their heads, I think it would have looked better. And I'm curious because now I want to go back and rewatch the first, do a little like side by side. I think that likely the first one looks as good as it does because Pratt knew uh, how to frame it so that we weren't seeing the artifice. Whereas this feels less concerned with masking the artifice. And I think they could have gotten away with some tighter photography, um, and you know better music at those scenes to make it more real
1: well and i yeah. think it,
0: it, one of the things um is that i notice with the production and we already kind of talked about this but it's just something to add which is and it kind of goes along with everything we're talking about with the score and everything it's like this movie is so uh, makes gotham feel even more claustrophobic than before to the point of it again, it doesn't feel real anymore. Like, we're so mm-hmm. closed in that we've we've taken it to a level to which it doesn't actually even make sense. And, you know, we talk a lot about that in film um, when it comes to, like, special effects and everything and, and what can trick the brain into making it feel more real and what doesn't. And this is one of those places where um, it does feel like that, you know, um, first not being there as a production designer... Um, and then the DP not being there either, you lost two people who understood how to trick the brain into making things feel more real. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right here, John, is that in the end, too, the score isn't helping you do that either. It's not helping trick your brain where so many times where scores can do that, where they take a scene and like they add this whole other layer that if you take it away, it feels crazy but when you put the score on there, it like feels perfect. It feels like, oh, well, it just makes everything better. And and that doesn't
2: happen in this film. But again, it's important to turn it around and lay it at Burton's feet because he mm-hmm. he very I, I think that, you know, something you said earlier very much is true. He has a massive success with Batman. And so Warner Brothers backs off. And says he delivered us a massive hit the first time. We put guardrails on him. Let's see if, if he can really take it to the next level if we leave him, if we back off a little bit. He's proven he can do it, he's proven he can deliver. So let's give him a little bit more. And I think that that might be, you know, to, to the point of Burton as a director where if somebody can push back against him. It produces a better product. Mm -hmm. Burton should be allowed to think in these terms. But if you want to produce the best film, you have to have somebody there who can help shape it into a more palatable thing. Because at the end of the day, right, there's the whole school. Are you making the film for yourself or are you making the film for an audience? Right. And artist will say, I make it for myself. If the audience loves it, that's that's fine. And I think this very much falls into Burton made this for himself. And the reason for the sort of massive sense of disappointment is that the first one was made for others and this was made for him. And that's why they don't quite mesh.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's I mean, that's so fascinating. And I feel like we could have a really interesting discussion with, like, a Snyder Cuts episode about that, because <laughs> I could want to <laughs> sure. have a whole conversation about, like, um, you know, letting a filmmaker kind of do their own thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, look, no director makes anything in a vacuum, uh, you know? Right. And so uh, even George Lucas, when he has full control over Star Wars and the prequels, he's not making things in a vacuum. Um, right. and so, uh, you know, it is all about the people that you work with and yeah, so I think it's really, it, it it's just so interesting. So I am fascinated then because I feel like this has been such a discussion where some of the stuff we agree on, some of the stuff we don't agree on, but I feel like there is a place that we do agree and that might be kind of where we land ratings wise with Batman Returns. And so, uh, Christy, I- I'm fascinated to see where you're going to go with this.
1: So I do think that you've both brought up some valid things that I had even forgotten until this rewatch that do go against, um, it being good. You know, I mean, it, it really, I, although there are things that I really love about Catwoman in this movie, I think that definitely that scene of her intro is, doesn't make any sense and is a little too over the top. Um, and I think that there was a definite lack of Batman in a movie called Batman Returns that we all noticed. And then that coupled with, like John was saying, the over the top nature of the other characters, um, and a muted Batman didn't really work. So, um, I do have to be more honest with myself about, you know, is it just nostalgia that would make me rate it higher? Um, so I really come down to a three and a half out of five bull whips because huh. there's a lot of things that I do still love about it. And maybe that is also the nostalgia piece, but I I am being honest about the things that I don't like about it. And um, that if they just tweaked a few things, like you said, John, maybe eventually it'll get better. Right?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you keep open for yeah. sure. And, and uh, I like that you said bull whips because one of my favorite, moments in the movie which i think is legitimately funny is when the security guards encounter her inside the department store mm-hmm. and they say you know uh well it was a, i i don't know whether to shoot or to fall in love like you know like <laughs> yeah it, it, it's that it's such a cute exchange especially because she said you know always confusing your pistols with your privates like it's that's such a cutting and interesting scene to sort of like pull apart because it's funny. And then you realize how, you know, like it, it, in that sense, there are certain exchanges like that, that are a little bit ahead of their time in terms of what the movie is looking at. Mm-hmm. Um I wind up and it might be because I'm a softie for it and, and it's tough for me, but there are things that I legitimately enjoy in this film for all of its flaws and maybe just maybe it's got my favorite Suzy and the Banshees song uh in it. So that that's always good. Uh if anybody's wondering, the song Face to Face that's playing while they're dancing at the Shrek costume or masquerade ball. Hmm. Um it's a fantastic song. It's a really great song. And I was a, a Susie Sue uh, or Susie and the Banshees fan uh for for a time. And uh, it's a really good song. Um I wind up giving it two and a half. Uh, it's. I'm not as harsh on it as you are, Matt. I'm not as in love with it as you are, Christy. I recognize that what works really works well. And I, I have to be kind to any movie that has a character kill someone. And in exchange afterward is, you just told me you were going to scare her. And the penguins reply is, she looked pretty scared to me. That's that's another fantastic... Like, there are just so many little moments like that that are just legitimately funny and endearing. So, yeah, two and a half for me.
1: Well, and to your point, too, I give it a negative for the plays on words that were really bad.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true.
1: Like what the penguin that's... says about cats.
2: Oh Yeah. 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 Although, uh, when when he walks upstairs and that one guy with the beard in the uh, the circus gang says penguin there's some body here to see you that was a pretty
1: cute that's funny
2: emphasis but yeah. when they're
1: trying too hard it's like oh yeah. just stop like it although i get what catwoman was trying to do with i am woman she says i'm catwoman hear me roar mm. yeah
2: yeah true true
0: well you made my job easy both of you i uh, this um I, you know, I haven't seen this movie in years for a reason because I did not really enjoy it my first time watching it. And then I watched it again and I realized that I really didn't enjoy this movie. I, I legitimately am hard-pressed to find a comic book movie I dislike more than this. I, nothing works really? for me, really. Um and it'll be interesting because, again, tinker. I haven't seen most of these versions of Batman in a very long time. So it was fascinating to me because we started off on a, a decent trend in the sense that, like, I was going up, you know, like, Batman 89 went up a little bit for me. And, like, I appreciated it a little bit more. I thought, oh, maybe that'll happen with Batman Returns. And then the Penguin origin is the way we open the movie. And I was like, oh, oh, no, this... I got a bad feeling about this and uh, it never left, unfortunately. And so I, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you guys have more enjoyment for the the film than I do. I, it's not one of those where I would fight anybody about it. You know, I just, I don't, I didn't enjoy it. And I'll give the movie one and a half uh, stars because I really like that Batman fries somebody with the Batmobile as a barbecue (laughs) Uh, yeah. I think that's great. That was the best moment in the movie for me. And uh, so really glad to see that happen. And I love I thought it was funny that Batman just kind of enjoys killing people in this movie. Uh, you know, like you said, when he blows that guy up and like, he had a little smirk on his face, like, hey, that was funny. Let's see what I can
1: do next. Uh, so you mean your favorite yeah. moment wasn't the penguin flying upward on his umbrella?
2: Oh, for Pete's
0: sake.
1: Mm, that's about as bad as lightsabers
0: and- that make people fly, but that's a whole other conversation.
2: I swear to God, if you talk ill of helicopter lightsabers, I will come through this screen and I will slap you senseless. Don't you dare. Here I was about I- to concede that it looked as bad as uh the uh the 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 elevator shaft in Star Trek V. When they're uh, they're flying on that that rig. And you can actually see the shadow of the rig behind it. It's like, really, guys, come on. You couldn't figure out a better way to shoot this? Come on. Mm, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, well, what I'm excited, though, is that it is time for recommendations. So, John, I'm really interested to see what you would like to recommend to everybody this
2: week. You know, another film that I rewatched recently uh, so that my wife could see it for the first time. Um, Can't believe it took her this long. Uh, to see it, but uh, And I enjoyed it even more Than the first time I watched it Is uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time In Hollywood oh, which Such a great film I, I think is just magnificent From first to last frame I think it's compelling I think it's funny I think it is slick I think, I think the world of this I am actually Terrified to see what happens With his next film Because uh, the last time I was this bonkers in love with a Quentin Tarantino movie, it was Jackie Brown, and then he released Kill Bill Volume 1, and I felt so hurt that he did that to me. Uh, Now, full disclosure, Kill Bill, The Whole Bloody Affair, is perfectly fine and a great film, but when it's split into two pieces, I, I, I don't care for... Kill will build that way but once upon a time in hollywood i don't see how tarantino can top himself um, or his crew can top themselves or anything like that uh, so i i heartily recommend once upon a time in hollywood especially if you know anything about the tragedy of what went down um it's such a cathartic cleansing experience to see history the way you wish it could have been instead of history the way that it went
1: Hence why Inglorious Bastards is a great movie. That too. Very that's true. right. You're absolutely
2: correct. Absolutely.
1: Uh, well, I do have something that I would like to recommend. And it's funny because it's definitely not in the realm of serious at all. But my husband and I came across a movie on HBO Max that we had remarkably somehow not seen called Get Hard with Kevin Hart and Will Ferrell. And it follows the story of Will Ferrell's character being um, convicted of fraud in the stock market and sentenced to a stay in San Quentin in prison. And um, (laughs) Kevin Hart is the guy that washed his car every day. And just because he's black, Will Ferrell thinks that he has been in prison before and asks him to prepare him for (laughs) it. (laughs) So it's like a training montage gone wrong of how you prepare to survive (laughs) prison. <laughs> that,
2: that sounds pretty funny. It's
1: that ridiculous pretty
0: funny. and funny. <laughs> that All right, yeah, that is pretty good. Um, so we, uh, my wife and I, went to the movies uh, this weekend with some friends. It was wonderful, and we went and saw a brand new film that just got released called Dream Horse, uh, which is a true story uh, about a town in Wales. That creates a syndicate, which uh, they basically they birth a uh, a racing horse, have that racing horse raised, and it's about what happens to this town in the pursuit of their dream to see the horse that they have all been banding together and you know putting a, as they call it a tenor in a week to make sure that this horse can be trained and all this. It's just a phenomenal film. I felt it 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 was heartwarming and and wonderful and beautiful and it's just such a great story. Uh it's got Tony Collette in it as well as Damian Lewis. Oh. Uh and was just a fantastic feel-good film. One of the one of the best movies I've seen in the theater this year and so I I just highly encourage you to find it and and go see it. It was it was just, you know, it's the kind of movie we just need right now. Uh, to be reminded, there are good things out there. And so I just loved it. I really loved it. I hope everybody will go see Dream Horse. And, you know, as theaters are opening, uh, support those those local theaters we got there. Um, bring them back. Bring them back strong. So, uh, well, this has been so much fun. And I honestly am so excited that the next time that uh, we get together to talk about a Batman film... It'll be Batman Forever, which I have some really interesting stories about my first time seeing that movie. So before we get there, though, uh, John, anybody wants to check out what else you've got going on? Which, of course, they do. uh, Where can they find you?
2: Oh, that's that's not true. Nobody does. It's uh, I'm Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E on your social network network of choice. Uh, I, I recommend Letterboxd. I have a lot of fun. Uh, Writing reviews, trying to make them entertaining and and funny. Uh, And you can find me actually over on the Nerd Party Network, uh, where I co-host House Lights, which is a series where we examine the works of directors from first to last. And you can find me also over there on the Nerd Party, co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast that I co-host with you, Matt. And,
1: uh, you know, yeah, that's pretty much where you can find me. Christy, how about you? Well, uh, I was going to add that you definitely do want to follow Kessel Junkie because it is entertaining. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Best Ben Bell, and of course sometimes in the Babel Conference too on Facebook. And when I'm not on 602 Club, I do a show with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabers and Spells, which is on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And we talk about geeky stuff that we don't usually get to talk about. So, uh, like I was saying, our next episode coming out is going to be about how we got into our Marvel fandom, and then I think. You know, speaking of Batman, we should do one how we got into DC fandom. Why not? Ooh. Um, That'd be good. Yeah. So that's what we do. So find us at Sabers and Spells on all your social media pages as well.
0: Well, and uh, you could find me uh, on all the social media platforms that I'm on under Matt Rushing 2 so if you are on a social media platform, just search for that name, and you'll find me if I'm there. Uh, you can also find me here on the network, uh, not only doing Cuts with John here uh, in this feed, as we mentioned, but also doing literary tracks and the orb. Uh, literary tracks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and the orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And over on the Nerd Party Network, uh, of course, with Aggressive Negotiations, you can find the Archive Show now, Owlposts with Drea Kaufman where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time so hopefully you'll check that out but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come
1: back now you hear